As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to use this video to give you the basics, the foundation uh, for rental property success. They wants to earn a million dollars or more a year in any time frame, any marketplace, any area. Ah, yes, the family home. A haven of comfort, a great place to raise a family, and on top of everything, a prudent investment. A home is in most developed countries in the world the centerpiece of the family finances. It is simultaneously the largest investment and the largest expense of almost any individual lucky enough to break into this increasingly unattainable market. But is this all for the best? Have houses been conflated with poker chips as people no longer look at them as shelter for a growing family, but rather as an asset to make wild speculative moves on in the hope of equally wild returns? The property market was at the centre of the last financial downturn in 2008. And as it seems we are on the precipice of another major recession, it is probably a prudent time to reevaluate what is going on in the world of real estate. To do this, we are really going to have to look at a few things on a few levels. From the microeconomic factors like an overdeveloped and overleveraged household, to issues on an economy-wide level, which is ultimately going to boil down to answering a few key questions. What does a strong property market mean for the wider economy? Are there better investments out there? And... Are we over-leveraged right now? If we can understand these factors, we will be much better equipped to deal with the biggest investment in our lives. Now, I don't want this to be an argument for one side or the other. I'm not particularly bullish or bearish on housing as it stands. Realistically, the people talking about never buying a house ever because you'll lose all of your money are probably just as irresponsible as the people advocating for owning 25 properties by the time you're 25 with $0 down by following these 25 different steps. Maybe it's just that the latter are slightly better at marketing. But there is still a lot to be said for housing as a good investment. It is just important to understand what it is that makes housing valuable on a granular economic level. A house is a function of two things. Land, you know, like the dirt plot of land that it sits on, and the structure, the actual building with the bedrooms and bathrooms and all of that fun stuff. Now, land is normally what appreciates in value when you are looking at real estate markets. If the land is in a desirable area, like, say, a city centre that is home to a lot of good jobs, then the land will appreciate in value. Take, for example, San Francisco and Silicon Valley. These are cities filled with tech companies that pay armies of developers and engineers hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to develop the new and exciting technologies of tomorrow. Now these tech bros all need to be housed somewhere, so there is a lot of demand for real estate close to these offices. What's more is that given these high incomes, the people demanding these homes bring a lot of monetary firepower to make some serious offers, and lo and behold, you get some pretty serious prices. Now on a social level, this can price non-participants in the industry out of the market in a city they may have well lived in for all of their lives, and that's probably a bad thing, but there is no fundamental economic issues here. 
Despite constant concerns about overinflation in these very, very high cost of living areas, there actually isn't anything to be too worried about so long as income levels of these areas continue to rise. In the same way, we would expect that even small towns in the USA demand a higher price tag for their properties than let's say real estate in sub-Saharan Africa. It just comes down to how rich the inhabitants of the area are. The second thing to consider is the appeal of an area to foreign purchasers or renters. Take a place like Aspen, Colorado. It's a nice area, but it's not exactly investment bank or tech startup central. The reason properties here are worth so much is because people from outside this area, be that another area in the United States or another country altogether, will pay a lot for a holiday home or seasonal rentals to come and enjoy the ski slopes during the winter. The same is true on a larger scale for entire cities. Places like Sydney, Vancouver and London have had their property market significantly influenced by high income earners buying properties from abroad. Now all of this is what appreciates the value of the land. Land around these areas is ultimately a limited resource with a constrained supply. There is only so much habitable space within a 30 mile radius of Silicon Valley or Manhattan or the village chairlift at Aspen. So as with anything, with growing demand and constrained supply, the price will rise. So does housing make a good investment? Well, yes. So long as you take the same approach to purchasing a house that you would do in purchasing shares. Does it have good credentials, a good history, a good path to future growth, and also is it just overvalued? If all of these questions work out, then sure, go ahead. But just remember, it's an investment like any other, and growth is not guaranteed. Beyond this, in some areas, paying off a mortgage may actually be cheaper than just paying rent. So even if prices don't grow at all, you still end up ahead. And on top of that, it can't be forgotten that sometimes we just have to stop being cold-hearted over-rational economists and realize that at the end of the day, people don't always make the most logical decisions. Sometimes it's nice to say my home is my castle and it's all mine. Now with that out of the way, let's look at where this investment gets a little bit weird. A house in an economic sense is just a good, like a car or a bar of soap or a bottle of water. It's a thing that we can buy and sell and get some kind of value out of, but it is kind of hard to define exactly what type of good it is. Many would argue that housing is a commodity, like oil or gold or coffee. It is frequently traded in speculative markets, and at the end of the day, it is something that is a means to an end for the end user. The big distinction here is that realistically, it's just the land that is a commodity. This thing here, the actual dirt. The structure is a consumer good. It is built from raw materials and it depreciates in value, just like a car would. A brand new home sounds lovely, and oftentimes people will actually consider that both the house and land will appreciate in value with the market. But the reality is that houses fall apart and fall out of style the same way that any other advanced manufacturing good does. The only thing is that a house often masks this depreciation with the appreciation of the land that it sits on. If you are in an area where the land value is equal to or less than the value of the structure, considerations have to be made over the appreciation of the land versus the depreciation of the structure because this can cause issues very, very quickly which leads us on neatly to what this means for the wider economy. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Housing is an essential service for everyone. As far as human needs go, shelter is right up there alongside water, air, and food. But this inherent requirement does not mean that markets are immune from the impacts of over-leveraging and the nasty stuff that comes with it. Real estate prices from the get-go are one of the strongest drivers of inflation. To explain why, we have to look just outside the residential market for a second and look at real estate inclusive of commercial real estate. Commercial real estate is things like shop fronts, office buildings, and warehouse lots. Most of these are still owned by investors and rented out to business the same way that someone might rent out a house. Now, if the property market is going well, prices are increasing, so too will the rent on these commercial properties. In most businesses, the primary expense centers are staff wages and then rent. If the business is seeing a 3 to 4% increase in their rental expenses every year, which is probably on the more conservative side, they are going to have to absorb that as a loss or pass that expense on to their consumers with more expensive items. This is effectively a second-hand form of cost-push inflation, where things are getting more expensive because they are harder to supply, not because there are more people demanding them. And this is generally agreed as the bad type of inflation, or at least the type of inflation that is harder to control. Things like retail shopfronts are huge employers in most countries, but we have seen a huge shift in the prevalence of online ordering. Now partially, this is because of convenience. Why would I go outside and interact with people if I can just stay in my basement and get everything I need in life brought to me? But partially, it's also because it's just cheaper. Online retailers aren't as exposed to the impacts of rental increases as their brick and mortar counterparts, so they alleviate this kind of expense. The reason this gets particularly bad is because physical presence retailers employ far, far more people than online distributors. So undercutting these stores can mean that a lot of low-income earning households suddenly are unemployed as their business is driven out of work. Now, a lot of people write this off as the inevitable march of technological process, but in reality, at least in the short term, it has more to do with the march of real estate prices. Now, this kind of effect permeates throughout all areas of an economy and applies when real estate is going well. So what happens when this all starts to turn around? Well, that all has to do with debt. We have explored the debt predicament we are in now, here in 2020, in our video exploring the economic crash we are in at the moment and if it could be the next Great Depression. I don't want to repeat too much of what was said there, but there is something very, very important to understand and take away from that video. 
Real estate prices are ultimately a function of demand. And demand is in turn a function of how much people earn and how much they can borrow. Now when we looked at property appreciation in high income areas, that was okay because the higher incomes justified the higher property prices. But in most areas in most developed countries around the world, real estate prices have been rising while wages have been more or less stagnant. So the missing piece of the puzzle and what is driving all of this is that lending has become more liberal. There was a huge cutback on lending in the wake of the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis as banks saw firsthand how irresponsible lending could hurt their bottom line. But since then, it has slowly started to creep back up. The issue in 2008 was that mortgages were being written to individuals with very little employment prospects, bad credit and unstable personal situations. Fortunately, that scenario has not really been repeated, but perhaps we will be at the mercy of another form of ill-advised lending at the other end of the spectrum. Real estate investing, even with wealthy landlords, is odd for two reasons. The first is that it is a highly leveraged investment. If you put a 10% deposit down on an investment property and borrow the other 90%, that is a 10 to 1 leveraged position. Sure, if the property appreciates 10%, you magnify your returns to 100%, But if it goes the other way, well, you have lost all of your money. Almost nobody out there would realistically recommend to take a 10 to 1 leverage position on the share market. At the end of the day, housing is just another speculative investment. A lot of landlords have been caught out even at the start of this crisis because they went into investing into real estate with the idea that it could only ever go up. Rents would keep on increasing and they would get rich. But the reality has hit that property is just another speculative market and you want returns, you have to accept the risks. The second reason this all gets weird is because you can use the income from a property to qualify for a loan for a property that you haven't even purchased yet. Most banks around the world will consider the income that you will get if you rent out that property and they will use this in their decision making process to see if you get approved or declined for the loan that you're after. Now this isn't important to people buying a house to live in, but it is starting to come back to bite the people that have bought a house to invest in. Take a situation like we are in now. Rentals have dried up as many people have lost their jobs and things like Airbnb don't exist anymore. We now also exist in a market where more investors than ever are relying on these returns because they never had enough regular income to pay off their mortgages. So. They are either forced to sell their house at a downtime in the market, further depreciating this over-leveraged asset, or alternatively, they can just default on their mortgage, which will cause severe problems in financial markets and eventually ends up in a repossessed home that will be sold at a downtime in the market, further depreciating this over-leveraged asset. Now, many people will turn around and say, well, banks lend money to businesses all the time to fund their ventures based on projected income, Why is this so different here? And well, it's different because businesses are rarely this over leveraged for starters, but more importantly for the wider economy, businesses actually produce something. This thing here, the family home with four bedrooms and three bathrooms is a really useful tool in providing shelter, but it doesn't actually produce anything. When economists consider investments, they are thinking of capital goods. Typically people invest into a company through shares and that company will use this funding to build new machines or buy up new computers and excavators or whatever. These are all capital goods. 
e.g. goods that are used to produce more goods. These normally make for pretty good investments because if you buy a machine that turns a raw material into a consumer good, you can profit off the difference in the price between the input and the output. This is the essence of value-added manufacturing. Now houses are sometimes considered capital, but they aren't really. The land that they sit on is, well, land, and the structure itself is effectively a consumer good. If anything, by having expensive housing, you are denying land, another factor of production, to genuinely profitable industries that will add value to goods to produce a wealthier economy. The foundation of economics is the idea that we have unlimited wants and only limited resources in which to fulfill those wants. Good economic management is built around the ultimate desire to expand the productive capacity of a given nation so that more resources are made available to more people. Shuffling around blocks of land and prescribing even higher values to them does not produce anything of value. It is paper wealth at its purest form. In the best scenario, it achieves nothing. But realistically, it is going to put consumers into debt, over-leverage a nation, and drive out real genuine industry to an area where they can get this crucial factor of production for a lower price. So, is real estate a good investment? On an individual scale, well, yes, probably. So long as you take the kind of critical analysis that one might take to pick a stock, and so long as you understand that this is a highly risky, highly leveraged, and undiversified investment, you will be just fine. Given population growth and the constant pressure to borrow more and more, it might not be a terrible call to at least make the home that you live in your own. On an economy-wide level though, a strong housing market is a real burden. It sucks money away from people that could have otherwise spent it on goods or services or invested it into things that add genuine value, and it smothers industries that are trying to get a foothold into the economy. The solutions are complex, because oftentimes a government has to toss up the liability of an unaffordable housing market, with the alternative being ripping value out of people's largest investment, which is not likely a move that is going to win them the next election. The real answer is to make sure that lending is responsibly managed. Record low interest rates mean that more and more people can borrow more and more money and think they are savvy investors after selling it to other people who have borrowed even more money. Taking on debt to invest into something that doesn't produce anything is almost always a bad idea on a macroeconomic level. Will this ever be properly controlled? Well, it's hard to say. At the end of the day, the banks are their own entities with their own profit motives and they want to make sure that they aren't missing out on a good deal if it comes up the same as individual speculators. But in the meantime, all we can do is avoid confusing leverage with genius and understand that no great economy was ever built by shuffling around piles of dirt. Hi guys, thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed the latest video. If you did, please consider liking and subscribing. If you really enjoyed the video, please consider supporting the channel on Patreon like these lovely people did. It really helps to make these kinds of videos possible. Otherwise, I will be hosting the Q&A stream same as ever on our second channel linked in the video description or our Discord server that is also linked in the video description. Hop on over there if you have any questions, comments or concerns about the video. I always love to hear your feedback, guys. Thanks. Bye. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. 
Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.